Well, good morning. Uh, my name is, is Matt Kerber. I'm a pastor at City Reformed. It's good to be with you. Our children are being dismissed for Children's Church right now. We're moving through a book of the Bible called James, a letter written by James, one of the leaders in the early church. Uh, we did this much of the fall. We took a break around Christmas, and now we're back. Uh, the church, the early church in particular, believed that the James we are reading from was uh, not someone who was one of the original apostles, one of the original twelve, but in fact they believed he was the brother of Jesus. That so he grew up in the home with Jesus. That so he had uh, uh, not been a follower. In fact, the Gospels tell us that the family of Jesus opposed him in his ministry. But later, after his resurrection. He saw the risen Christ and came to faith. The Apostle Paul speaks of James, the brother of our Lord, and many think that that is the James who wrote this book. The uh, structure of the book at times can be a little hard to follow. Uh, He doesn't give us as much of an outline as we might want. But early in the book, in James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, he brought up three themes. You may remember this from last semester. He said, He spoke about the nature of true religion, and for James, religion isn't a bad word that we put on people that are, you know, too stuffy, but it was a a description of a life of faith and faithfulness. James said, if anyone thinks he's religious but doesn't bridle his tongue, his religion is worthless. True religion before God is this, that one learns to care for orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, in that verse, you may remember, as we looked at it, we sort of saw three things. How we speak, how we uh, care for others in need, and also uh, how we relate to the world around us. And what's been pointed out is that the book of James really deals with those three themes in different sections. Uh, Chapter 2, we saw last semester, was the theme of caring for those in need around us. James was really pointed in pushing his church and, and through that letter pushing us to think about how we care for actual needs of people around us. But as we turn to chapter 3, we see the first of a couple of sections where James is turning his attention to our speech, how we, how we talk. Uh, I think we'd recognize this as a big part of our reality, and we want to think not just about how we talk, but how we communicate in all the forms, verbal and nonverbal. So I'll read this passage. We'll uh, respond together. This is the word of the Lord, and uh, then we'll, we'll talk about it. So James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by a strong wind, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest to set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set up among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. 
My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does, it spring, does a spring pour forth the same oak from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. When I was growing up, I had a minor speech impediment. It was not really a big deal, but I had trouble saying the TH sound. It was a little embarrassing because my name has that sound in it. So for much of elementary school, I would introduce myself as Matthew Kerber. And some friends never let me forget it. It was harder for my brother. He had troubles with his R's, which also is in our name. So at some points, he may have called me Matthew Kerber. For him, it was a long period of speech therapy. For me, it was much quicker. I, I just sort of clicked one day. I, I remember the somewhat discomfort of not saying my name correctly, but I, more, more importantly, when I think of the story, I remember of the ways in which words change us and the way we learn through communication. When I was in fourth grade, a friend of mine, Ben Yeager, taught me to speak my TH sound properly. Uh, you may imagine, uh, you know, all the learning that happens in a formal speech class, but this happened when we were uh, playing in the backyard of someone, and he turned to me and said, you know, you can say your TH down if you put your tongue up to your teeth and study your bottom lip. Now, I don't know if he learned this because he had a struggle himself, but something clicked. And in that moment, if I wanted, uh, you know, I, I, to say the TH sound properly, I could, if I wanted to leave class to go to a special speech therapy class and get scratch and sniff snickers, I had to fake it, <laughs> which embarrassingly I did. Uh, but the, not only did I struggle some, at this point to say things properly, I still do sometimes. I've, I've had a much harder time in life in Spanish. I can never trill my R the way a proper Spanish speaker would do. But, but again, I think mostly of the power of words to teach. The passage we're looking at today is one of many in the book of James, where James talks about the power of words. But in particular, the, the passage as a whole is one that is fairly stark, and, and at times startling, the warnings that James gives us. He warns us of the power of words, not only to do good, but to do harm. And if we think about our own lives, the real problem we have with our words is not a speech impediment, though some of us can identify perhaps a very difficult struggle to speak a certain word the right way. The real problem we have, the, the deeper moral problem, is that the words we say flow from inside us. We'll see that emphasis in James. The problem we have is not just our tongue. When James speaks of our tongue, he's not saying the problem you have is a muscle. He's using that as a description to describe our patterns of speech and communication. Clearly, clearly, James is not writing a whole uh, passage in this letter, a long passage, about literally how our muscle works. James takes it for granted that our tongue says what we think. We notice that in verse 4. He says, the, very, the, very small, the small rudder of a boat takes it wherever the will of the pilot directs. Just as our tongue is a rudder that causes so much change in the world around us, the real issue and play is the pilot that drives it. The problem James is concerned about is not when our, our tongues do the wrong thing physically, but when they do the right thing physically and the wrong thing morally, when they show the inside of our heart and they reveal what is most important to us. James wants us to know this is a real concern. And before we go any further, I just want to 
pause and recognize that James lived in a very verbal society, an oral society. Certainly there was writing. This is a written letter. But it's likely that this letter was read aloud where it was delivered, perhaps as a sermon to Christians who had been exiled from Jerusalem. We had explored that last semester. It was an oral society where, while many people might be able to read and write, most communication was verbal. And while we still live in a verbal society, the advent of the printing press hundreds of years ago and later, the computer and technological revolution has caused a whole lot of our communication to be not oral, but written or typed with our fingers, our hand, or our thumbs as we press away on our phones. And I believe fully that what James has in mind applies not just to what we verbalize, but to all the forms of communication we engage in, how we write, how we tweet, how we speak. How how do we communicate with the world around us, and what does that reveal about what's inside what James tells us three things in the passage. We'll look at three things here. You have an, uh, an outline in your bulletins. If you want to follow along, that could help you. First of all, uh, James is uh, concerned that we see the power of our tongue or the power of our speech and communication. And secondly, he'll, he'll give us a warning using a, a sort of a, a confusing phrase. He'll speak of the tongue being untamable, warning us about the need of vigilance in our speech. And then finally, we'll consider how we can have hope to speak and even to write differently. Uh, So first of all, the tongue is powerful. We'll look at verses 1 through 5. And in these five verses, there are five sentences. Three of the sentences are pretty easy to understand, and they function together. Two of them are a little harder. So we'll start in verse 3 because it's a little easier. Uh, James speaks about horses, ships, and fires. And, And for the most part, we can follow what he's saying. And verse 3 describes the the horse. He says, if we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. James is making the point that a small thing, a bit, controls a big thing, a horse. Uh, I went horseback riding for the first time in my life last summer, and my first thought was, this is bigger than I imagined. And I am further from the ground than I had thought was going to happen, right? It's different when you look at someone else riding, you know, gracefully across the sunset. But when you're on this big animal, you think it's a long way down. Horses are big compared to people. But the interesting thing is a, a, a bridle puts a small piece in their mouth and you turn, you control a tamed horse. The, the whole animal is a small thing. James says, so our tongue, our speech, it seems small. But it has a huge impact on the world around us. It affects everything in our life. Secondly, he moves to something even bigger. He goes from from, uh, a a horse to ship or to boat. Verse 4, look at the ships also. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs them. James, in his day, would have a fairly big boat, maybe a Roman galley people could think of with many people on board. But this analogy is even stronger in our day because we have massive ships. An aircraft carrier, for instance, can have over 6,000 people living on it and 10,000 airplanes. That's bigger than the town I grew up in. We had no airplanes and you know, 6,000 people, something like that. That's, an, that's a boat. That's, that's enormous. Now, there is a rudder that steers an aircraft carrier as well. And I'm told that the rudder on an aircraft carrier is, is, is a big rudder. But in comparison, it's small. 
one-tenth of one percent of the size of the whole, of the whole deal, the whole boat. That's an amazing ratio that we have. A small rudder turns a massive boat. And from there, in verse 5, James goes to something even bigger. He's thought of horses and ships. Now he thinks of forest fires. Again, we were uh, in Colorado last summer, and uh, the forest fires had engulfed portions of the state. Uh, A small spark, maybe, they think, from a, a railroad outside Durango, caused a forest fire that tore across the area so large that in sometimes you would just feel the smoke rolling in and it would darken the sun. A small spark. This is the point that James draws out. He doesn't use the word spark, but he says a small fire. In verse 5, how great a forest to set ablaze by such a small fire. And all, all three of these illustrations that he uses are doing the same thing. A small thing makes a big impact. James is saying, wake up. Your words, your words that maybe feel small or inconsequential can have tremendous impact on the world around you. And in a sense, with these analogies, it could be both good or bad. There is a great potential for our words. A scholar, a commentator named Curtis Vaughn wrote in his discussion of this letter in the late 1960s, our tongues, our speech can do so much. They can sway men to violence or it can move them to the noblest of actions. It can instruct the ignorant, encourage the dejected, comfort the sorrowing, and soothe the dying. Or it can crush the human spirit, destroy reputations, spread distrust and hate, and bring nations to the brink of war. This is the point that James is driving home. It's obvious in three of the illustrations. It's not as clear in the other two. We'll go back to the first two verses. Now, first of all, and what first seems a little bit unconnected, James gives a warning to teachers. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. But if we consider just a moment, we do see a connection. Teaching is done with words, either written or spoken. And those words have the power to impact other people. Um, I'm very aware that as I'm speaking to you now, I'm doing the very thing James warns about. I I talk with others about this in different types of ministry, whether pastors or people in the church. Anyone who has any experience involved in ministry for any period of time will tell you, they have in the slightest bit of maturity, that one of the most frightening things is that someone might listen to what you say. You spend most of your early experience thinking no one ever listens to anything I say and then someone listens to something you say and you think, oh my goodness, that's so frightening. Well, James is recognizing that's how we're wired. All of us are shaped and changed. I, I was, my life was changed in a small way when my friend in fourth grade used his words to teach me something. And that, that's important, but not as important as the way in which our words shape others for moral action. We can use words to convince people to do good or ill. We can lead them in a good or a bad direction. And so James gives a warning. Again, the power of words. Verse 2, he tells us something about words. He acknowledges uh, none of us uh, uh, get it right all the time, for we all stumble. It's comforting that James, this great leader in the early church, says we. James knew what it was to stumble James, in his life, if this indeed is the brother of Jesus, was probably involved in trying to 
dissuade Jesus from his ministry. We see that story told in several of the Gospels. And maybe James would have thought back and said, boy, that was a time. I, I really wish I hadn't tried to use my words that way. But James goes on in this, this second, uh, uh, second verse to talk about the ways in which learning to control our speech can have an impact on all of our body. He says this, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle his whole body. It's a little bit of a hard verse. What we've already seen is that James uses the word perfect in his book, who's already seen this, not to describe someone who is sinless or without error, but describe someone who's reached completion or we might say maturity. Some English translations will, will take that word a little more uh, smoothing it over, maturity. We saw earlier in the book of James, he said, if you learn to endure through hardship, you will be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In other words, as we looked at it, we learned that James says the pathway to maturity, to moving towards completion, not that we're perfect. James, I don't believe, is teaching that at all. In fact, he just said we all stumble in many ways. But we can be mature, and the pathway to maturity runs through things like learning to endure difficulties, learning to control your speech, learning to, as James would say earlier, bridle your tongue. James knows that our speech is so central to our thinking that how we communicate says a lot about who we are. And learning to restrain and control what we speak for God's purposes and for the good of others is a really important step in learning to be mature and appropriately self-controlled. Again, we just put this in context. James really does he presses points home, but uh, clearly he can't be telling us that, that someone who doesn't speak at all is perfect. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that, it, that if you just never speak, you'll be a perfect person. He's saying the way we communicate is a window into our heart and how we are self-controlled. And he says, if you learn there, it has so many applications. We recognize that so much of what goes wrong is associated with what we speak or what we write or maybe even the things we type into the computer. It's all part of who we are and how we are appropriately controlled. Well, on all of these points, I think James would argue there's a great power in communication. Pay attention. And I think we want to listen up because one of the tendencies of a modern age is we are so surrounded by words that we're tempted to think they have no value. Does it really matter what I say or what someone else says? It's just words. You think about it, you, you not only are, are speaking often, but likely when you get in the car, the radio is on and you hear words and your phone buzzes in your pockets and, and words show up on the screen or words come in through the box. We are surrounded by words, competing words. And we maybe are tempted to think, well, does it really matter what I say? It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what people around us say. I think we, we can live in a time where the, uh, the sort of uh, older notions of civility of speech can seem to be quaint or even meaningless. I feel certain James would not say so. He would urge us to think that words matter, what we say matters, the ends doesn't justify the means, and that we ought not to excuse away harmful speech in ourselves or others simply because we think it meets our purposes. The second thing we see as James moves forward is he actually presents a darker picture. If the first five verses could simply speak of power and we could speak of good or ill, 
by the time we move through verses 6 or 8, James is warning us strongly, mostly about the harm. And I think that's because James is a realist. See, if we would think of him as a pastor. He dealt with people, and he saw the tremendous harm. He knows the potential and the capacity to use our words for good. Later, he'll mention the, the words that can praise God, that can, we can use words to lift up, to instruct, and to help others. But here, James has the purpose of showing us that you've got to be careful. I think that's how we understand this section six through eight, just line after line. James is pounding on us. You've got to be careful with what you say. And I think our experience shows that as well. We have in the course of our life had people certainly say encouraging things to us. My guess is you are quicker to remember the couple of really harmful, painful things that were said that having been thrown out there, just aren't easily retracted. The center of how James makes this point is to say that the, the tongue is, in a sense, untamable. And that's a little bit hard, because we might think James is saying we can't control the tongue at all. Is James giving us an excuse that we, you know, we kind of run our mouth, blah, 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 and then we say, oh, it's untamable. What can I do? You know, it just happens. <laughs> I know what my fingers were doing, and, uh, you know, I'm, that's how my family is. I don't think that's the point he's making at all, because everything else is arguing that we think carefully. He's urging that we learn to put a bridle in. I think the analogy is a little sharper, and if we think it through, there's something we can get here. James says, we learn to tame. Humans can tame all sorts of animals, but we can't tame the tongue. He thinks of them. He may have pictures in his head in the first century Roman Empire. They may have seen tamed animals coming in. He lists beast and bird, reptiles and sea creatures. He's seen them tamed. And just to take a few animals we can think of, maybe this can un unfold his point a little bit. Uh, we, many of us have tame animals in our house. We have a dog and a cat. The dog's more tame than the cat. The cat just, you know, it does what it wants. But our dog is fairly tame. And, and when we're around the house, we're generally not thinking, what if the dog comes and bites me? Imagine, contrast that with a wild dog. A wild dog that, you know, was lived feral in the woods. You would not take your eyes off a wild dog if it was near your campsite. Or a horse. I'm, again, I had one experience on a horse, that's it. But if you were a horse rider and you rode horses all the time, perhaps in every, every age of human history, except for you know, the recent one where we have cars, people who rode horses, they didn't spend all day thinking about the horse. They, they knew the animal, and it was responsive. There, there was a sense of expect, expectation and predictability in a tame animal. James says, listen, if you have two pictures to use for your speech, don't use the picture of a tame animal. Think of a bucking bronco. What he's arguing for here makes sense when we consider that his point is to warn us about diligence in thinking about our speech. I think the point that he's making, all of these different things contribute to saying, think carefully about what you say. Let's just look at them in, in briefly in their context. I think it helps. Verse 6, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. What's the point of that? Warning, you know, red, red button. Be careful here. The tongue stains the whole body. You know, what you say affects much more 
than just the airwaves that are moved by the sounds that come from your mouth that communicates meaning and it has power to harm. It, it, the entire course of your life is stained by this, can be stained by this, James says. And what he probably means by that is that every aspect, you know, from the time we are kids and we learn to speak, we begin to say harmful things to our parents. And in old age, bitterness can drive us to use our word and sh- words in sharp and driving ways. Verse 6, he says in this sort of, think of this picture, your tongue is a fire set on fire by hell. Whoa. All right, I don't think James is intending to have a literal interpretation here. In what way is that fire caused? But he's saying, think seriously about it. This is a, a, a hellish power and harmful words. In verse 8, it's a restless evil full of poison. Think about this, for example, the ways in which gossip and slander can ruin someone's reputation in their life. Think about the way some of our arguments can lead someone to do something harmful, where in history, uh, powerful, persuasive leaders have led people to great harm with the strength of their words. Many of us know painfully on both sides of the equation the way that bullying words can cause people to fall into the drowning depths of despair. Of course, we recognize that there are is within our country important provisions for free speech and we recognize the limits of the government to what it can control and that people say, but we're not talking about legal constraints here. We're talking about moral constraints. In a verse we'll read later, Jesus said, we will be held accountable for every careless word. Why does James warn us this way as he thinks about the, t- the tameness of a tongue or our, our urgency, we don't think of our tongue as being tame, under control. He wants us to think carefully that we are people who must give consideration to what we say. And, and I think where this warning can be helpful is when we consider that often we do great harm in places where we think we're being relaxed. I mean, this is so typical of people of a certain age that exist in my household, um, that you can sometimes say something really hurtful and say, oh, I'm just joking. Really dumb, just joking, I'm just joking. We all do that though, don't we? I wasn't being serious when I said that really hurtful thing that had grains of truth and it cut you down. Just joking. Or, or perhaps it's in those places where we think, you know what, I'm really comfortable here. Maybe we have the, hard, the hardest, most painful words. The words that hurt us most sh- sharply are often from people who know as well. You know, on one hand, we have varying degrees of comfort, varying degrees of being relaxed, varying degrees of care. But I think James would have us to think that there are no relationships where we just say whatever we're thinking without regard for the other person. Because our relationships are guided by love. And to love someone, we have to think, how do my words affect them and impact them? I was thinking about this the other day, trying to apply it to my own life. The, uh, the, you know, the, the closest human relationship I have is with my wife. But I, I know. <laughs> I dare not say everything I'm thinking. It's not loving. And, and I have a high degree of comfort. And as an introvert, I often am really pressed in my words to speak more of things that are uncomfortable and vulnerable and and hard to say. That's often the challenge. But 
the need to think, is that a helpful comment to make, shows up everywhere in our life if we are learning to tame our tongue. We're always, always on guard. I think that's what James is saying here. Well, well how do we do this? We'll close with a third and final point. How do we actually do these types of things? It can be hard. It can feel uh, like a lot of effort. And I think the secret is not merely to be people who sort of white-knuckle our way through, but James wants something deeper. Two things we see as we move to the final verses, verses 9 through 12. Uh, First of all, James calls us to think differently, not just about speech, but about the people we are speaking of and speaking to. As we begin in in verse 9, he says, With this tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people made in the likeness of God. Now, part of his point is that you shouldn't have two things going on. Isn't that inconsistent? And on one hand, as a a pastor, James is dealing with the reality. We all stumble in many ways. And he knows that people do bless God and curse their neighbor. He knows that's who he's speaking to. But his point is, doesn't that seem odd? Brothers, it ought not to be so. And in order to drive this point home, he helps us to think not just about the consistency of our tongue, but of the identity of the people to whom we speak. James says, the people you curse are people who are made in the likeness of God. This is actually a very important theological point he's making here. The Bible says in the beginning that all humans were made in the image of light and likeness of God. And as we fell into sin and rebelled against him, that image is marred, it's twisted, it's distorted. We image God improperly. But here, as in the Old Testament, we are told the way in which we treat people around us still is meant to reflect this. We are called in the Old Testament not to harm or to murder because people are made in the image of God. And here James says the controlling principle for how you speak is that the people you're speaking about are image bearers. You see how he brings this, in a sense, sort of full circle. We ought to, on one level, maybe rather than full circle, a higher level, on one level, James says, what you speak will affect you. Be careful. We know that. We see people who lose their jobs over careless words and stupid things they write on the internet. But beyond that, James says, think about the people around you. That's a more important goal. Your, your words impact them. You could, for good or for ill, there are people. And then he makes a final move and he says, those people are made in the image of God, the people you're speaking to and speaking about. Even in their fallen state, even in their brokenness and sin and wickedness, still bear the image of God and they are to be spoken of with respect because of who God is. I think we need to hear this because the number one reason we justify slanderous, vicious speech is by saying they deserve it. Isn't that really what we say every time we say something really sharp and cutting? Well, you don't know how foolish that person is. James says, I know. (laughs) That person is still made in the image of God and the way you speak to them and about them reflects on who you think God is. It's a hard challenge, friends. It's a hard challenge. Would, Would you just pause for a moment and allow this to challenge you? Not my words, what James is writing. We affirm this is the word of the Lord. And would you ask, God, am I speaking of and to people in ways that reflect your image and print it on them as people made in your image? 
And of course, we know that doesn't prevent saying harm th- hard things. Truthful things can be hard. The Lord Jesus himself, who warned, warned about every careless word, also had strong language, particularly for the religious leaders, but strong language for those people made in God's image, warning them of their disastrous circumstance. I admit this is not always a clear line, but would you allow the weight of that call to shape and to change you? Secondly and finally, though, as we think about how to live and speak differently, there are hints here in this passage that drive us back to the teaching of Jesus. We've said before that James, as a book and a style, has most similarity in the Bible to the teaching of Jesus found particularly in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke, even. In this, we find huge overlap in subject matter and themes and ways of saying things, which isn't surprising if James was the brother of Jesus. They'd grown up with the same influences, and certainly he had been around him teaching and speaking. When we read this passage, we think of the fact that Jesus talked often and taught often about speech, uh, particularly in, in a, a verse, in a series of verses you have in, uh, in your uh, additional scriptures. Jesus spoke about warning us about our words. Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 to 37, he says, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. We'll pause there. You may have heard some of the overlaps, not only a concern for speech, but this understanding that the the speech we give is actually an overflow of the inside. You see that in both places. Uh, James puts it a little differently. He speaks about uh, a tree bearing fruit, an image he also borrowed from Jesus, or a spring bubbling out water. The point he's making is both to say there should be consistency and also to point out what comes out reflects what's inside. Or as Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And through our speech, through our communication, verbal or written, we are constantly revealing something about what's inside. Or as Jesus says in Matthew 12, something about what we treasure. What you talk about is what you treasure. If you're a proud grandparent who's just delighted by these cute grandkids that, that don't keep you awake at night but say nice things when you're around them, you might find yourself always talking about them. And it's clear, whoa, he or she loved their grandchildren. If you're most excited about your TV show that you're watching, it's going to come out in your conversation. If you, at the deepest level, most treasure yourself, your importance, your standing, your control, your protection, that too will come out in your words. And when we find that our words are sharp and cutting, knocking others down, it's usually because we hope to gain something in the comparison. And when our natural default is to boast of our greatness, James says the small tongue boasts of big things. When we use our tongue to control our situations and to control people, it's usually for our own purposes. The Bible as a whole tells us this is true. Jesus warns us that writers of the New Testament warn us what you treasure most will shape you from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
And so in conclusion, we are reminded that what we need most is not just a new set of principles, but a new heart. James in his book will remind us ultimately that the call, all of this letter is leading to the point where he says, humble yourself before God and he will lift you up. Humble. A humble heart surrenders its treasure before God. Trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting his righteousness, his goodness, and his power, we surrender control. Instead, seek his treasure and glory. James spent his life with someone who never misused his words. Interesting to think about, isn't it? And Jesus had sharp words and strong words and warning war words. They were always just and true. They always reflected the character of God found in others and most fully realized in the Son of God living among us. And yet he gave himself in our place. Jesus, the one who never misspoke on the cross, was forced to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he became sin in our place. We read in our responsive reading today that one of the impacts of that, Jesus gave himself for us and our assurance of pardon from the book of Hebrews that our, that our lips would have the fruit, that the fruit of our lips would be praise that acknowledges God. He suffered in order to sanctify our speech. When we yield our will to the Lord Jesus, surrendering before him control and power, even security or fame or recognition, he begins to give us a new treasure, the greatness and the glory of God, the love of neighbor, the good of others. When that change happens in our heart, our speech can then begin to follow and for all of us, it will be a work in progress. We will be ever vigilant because the old treasures are still there more than we wish to admit. Would you simply do this? Would you think about how you speak this week? What you write, what you type, what you peck out with your thumbs on your phone. And would you allow that to be a window into your heart, to your treasure, to the, the things you value most? And would you, by the grace of God, be willing to surrender them before Jesus, seeking instead the treasure of his glory and the love of those around us. Let's pray.